Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hello to you, the automotive faithful. I am Reverend Hatfield, and welcome to Driven Radio Show, where we bring you the gospel of internal combustion. Hallelujah. Here with me in the Driven Radio pulpit is our engineer and co-host, Minister Mark Groves. Yeah, brother. We are coming to you from the Temple of All Things Automotive, the Driven Radio Show studios. Hey, before we get started tonight and go too far, <laughs> uh, I needed to mention that I was today's guest on the Cars Yeah podcast Dude. with Mark Green. Be sure to check out the show at www.carsyat.com. Yeah, he's prolific. And that he's was cool that he got amazing. You on. Yeah, he does he, so much. He uh, he works his tail off, and uh, I I think he does four or five interviews a week. Wow, a week. Mm-hmm. He has to find five people worth talking to in a week. Dude, I couldn't. I, couldn't, I can't do that no. in a month. No, that's why we only talk <laughs> twice a year. Yeah, no crap. <laughs> <laughs> I think I threw him for a loop because for the inspirational quote, I quoted Frank Zappa. <laughs> we got done and he said, Frank Zappa? I'm pretty sure that's a first. Catholic <laughs> girls yeah. with their tiny little mustaches. Yeah, there well, you go. Because I think it, I think it must be hard to not make it routine, you know, doing that many. And so I think he really likes it when you throw him for a loop. Well, it, it was a yeah. fun interview. I had a great time talking to him. For everybody who doesn't know, that third voice that sounds unusual is Doctor Ken Yon. He is the professor and chair of the history of the Department of History and Politics at McPherson College. For the past thirty years, he has taught philosophy, geography, political science, and automotive history. Ken has traveled all over the world, teaching courses on cars and castles in Europe, hiking the Japanese Alps, the Andes, the Polish Carpathians. That's where Vigo came from in the second Ghostbusters movie, wasn't it? Carpathians? (laughs) That's right. Uh, The Black Forest in the Swiss Alps. Ken has served as a professor at some of the top schools in France and East Asia. Outside of the classroom, Ken has a love for restoring and building vintage racing and touring bicycles. Uh, it goes beyond love. He's uh, he's a fiend. Uh, he's an I, avid- I uh, prefer to introduce myself as a bicycle crack whore. Yes, <laughs> that's well, the, yeah. and, and both are absolutely <laughs> accurate. Ken is an avid online gamer, amateur gourmet. Uh, one of my best friends, a co-conspirator, road trip buddy, astonishing rack and tour, and possibly the world's oldest living juvenile delinquent. Ken, welcome back to Driven Radio. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> so great to be here. It's always fun to interview yeah. somebody that I've gone out and done stuff that we should have been arrested for. Yeah, we, uh-huh. You know where the bodies are buried, so uh-huh. I can't say anything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a quote from one of our road trips. When uh, he and I both looked at Luke driving a, a Luke Channel driving a really craptastic Bradley GT, oh God, the Bradley and we GT. said, "Is that thing on fire?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we raced up next to him, and I think you held a big lighter. I had an Almond Brothers lighter in car. my truck. <laughs> And I gave it to Ken, and I said, light it and point to this. And so Ken lights the lighter and points at Luke and then points at the lighter and points at Luke, and Luke's eyes get real big. And uh, that's how we decided it was probably time to pull over. <laughs> Ken, you've, you've 
taught the history of the automobile as part of the McPherson College Auto Restoration Program for years and years. So you know as well as anyone how much the automobile has shaped society in the past 120 years, as well as how the automobile has evolved. The last 50 years have seen a dramatic evolution, and probably even more so the last 30 years, uh, in terms of technology, performance, comfort, reliability, efficiency, safety, utility, and design, uh, especially coming from somebody who drives two cars that are both over 50 years old. Looking ahead, what do you think we can expect from the next 20 years as far as automobiles are concerned? The question of forecasting is, I think it's a really interesting one, and uh, thanks for inviting me to chat about that. But, um, you know, a lot of people think that if you're going to talk about cars and technology of the future, that you're just kind of shooting from the hip. It's all kind of made up stuff. But there are there are um, processes of technological forecasting that have been used extensively. All corporations and all businesses rely on them. You know, and we can't actually have all the resources forward, you know, has a committee working hard on five-year, 20-year, 50-year projections of the future of the automobile and the technology involved. And there are ways to do that. There's something called the Delphi technique developed by the Rand Corporation and, and that have shown in the past to be really successful. And even though we don't have the resources, we can kind of look at what GM's doing and looking at Ford's doing and looking at Volkswagen's doing, and we can tell the trajectory of what they see coming down the pike. And so there's a lot of ways that even if we don't have all the tools to do the research ourselves, we can see what the research says. And then, of course, you know, we can we can speculate and, and ask questions about, you know, technology and the changing environment around us. So. So, you know, I, I think one of the interesting questions you had for me, um, Brett, that we were talking about was the future of fossil fuels. And I think that's a question that's on the mind of everybody. And I, I think one of the things that often gets kind of set by the wayside in the discussion of cars in the future is everybody's kind of waiting to hear what the car of the future is going to be. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, if you think about the cars of the present, there is no car of the present. It's just thousands of different variations and then the very second you get it home you start customizing it to make it your car anyways <laughs> and 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 so i think the question of the car of the future actually should be a question more like the range of cars of the future so a lot of people are asking they're busy trying to ask is it going to be hydrogen you know or is it going to be evs or is it going to be obviously and the answer probably almost certainly is all of the above yes I, I I think so too. And the other thing is, at least for performance cars, which is usually what we look at hardest here, it's a fantastic time to be a car guy. Yeah, petroleum-driven internal combustion cars have never been better, and electric cars have never been better. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing lots of uh, lots of selection when it comes to performance cars like that. You've got Teslas and and the Porsche Taycan that do nearly a two second flat zero to sixty. Amazing. Holy crap! Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful stuff. Uh, one of the friends of the show, Ped Watt. You've met Ped, uh, great photographer. Holy yeah, cow! Uh, he rode in an all wheel drive uh, turbo. I think it was a Porsche GT2 RS. 
a couple a, a year ago in Oklahoma. He said the thing hits so hard that it drags the blood to the back of your head, and you feel a little lightheaded for a couple of seconds. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's pretty remarkable stuff. <laughs> well, another another part of that near term development, you know, with these amazing hybrids, is one of those directions. You know, that's F one is certainly there, and there's yep. a lot of people moving that direction. Is that the the generation of production batteries right now? They're in production. These are not conceptual. These are not. These are production battery batteries that are being sent to distributors for or to manufacturers for manufacturers to figure out how to incorporate them have roughly an eighth of the weight wow. of the current batteries that we're using in now, cars. That is certainly something to be concerned with in EVs because they are so stinking fast, but they're heavy. They're damn yeah. heavy. And if they can solve the weight problem, and if you can immerse them in water and they don't explode, uh, yeah, which would be a really nice feature. That would be pretty cool, too. That would be sweet. Yeah, we wouldn't mind that That would be really all. sweet. That would be nice. You I, know? I, I think most of us have seen a video where an, an electric car of some kind has caught fire. And, yeah. and to say that the occurrence is energetic, I think, is greatly understating just what happens and fire departments have a hell of a time putting those things out oh good luck with that yeah Yeah. it doesn't happen Uh, those chemical fires are brutal you need all kinds of different carbon dioxide projectors so as good as the technology is it needs to be better and there are certainly some problems to address with it Uh, let me qualify that it doesn't have to be better at everything everybody's got such a diverse idea of what they want from their car all it has to have is some advantage in one dimension, even it can have all kinds of crippling disadvantages. You know, the the Stanley the Stanley Steamer crowd in 1920s <laughs> loved those things. Yeah. you know, and they bought them while and there were the early electrics. You know, it was kind of an even race in 1910 between the steam internal combustion and and everyone had its advocates and they they hung on to them even afterwards. I I think the EVs need to be better in that. Uh, we need to find a technology that isn't quite so limited by the materials used oh, yeah. because, you know, the cobalt's going to run out. But that's the same problem they have with the hydrogen cells, you know, with the platinum yeah. and the other. Yeah. And it's So the technology needs to catch up. The other thing uh, was I read this in the last couple of days, and I wish I could remember where I read it. The process of manufacturing for the batteries is – far worse than the process of manufacturing internal combustion engines, but it does eventually level out for carbon footprint. The problem is you got to drive the car about 80,000 miles to get there. Actually, I think the future of that is going to be determined by something that's completely unrelated to the car. It's going to be determined by how we make grid electricity. Possibly. I mean, because if, if you have a carbon neutral grid electrical system, then the EVs actually turn out to be green. But if, if you're using carbon fuels like here we in the Midwest to make the electricity, and there's actually some, there's these, there's these mathematical models that are done at, at MIT and at Caltech, and it's called life cycle assessment analysis, these LCA models. And there's some really interesting scholarly work where they're, they're quantifying and measure these things. And I, I've been actually boning up on this because this is a topic, Brett, you and I have been talking about for two decades. You yeah. and I have been having this conversation 
on and off. But do you pop- feel like I've cheated you, dragging and yawn here to do it again? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. No, but, no, but it's it, because it's a, it's a really great question about how we're going to live. We we want our cars so badly. There's so much freedom and so many great things that we can do with them to make our lives better. And so, you know, understanding what the future of that is is pretty interesting for I think everybody. Whether you love, you know, squealing tires or whether you want something that's super efficient and reliable, whatever is that that future's. A big question, but in the Netherlands, for example, where they have really advanced recycling systems in place, for them, the cost of um, the, um, the the cost of a car and carbon footprint actually comes ninety percent from burning gas itself, ninety okay. percent. Well, but in the United States, where we don't recycle them and we have different usages, it, it's a much smaller fraction. You know, so the manufacturing here it is, and we, you and I have said this to each other so many times: is you want to be green is just keep your car exactly, keep your old car, keep them running. Well, it doesn't and, matter what the mileage is, and, and part of that is <laughs> you can do a certain percentage uh, with renewable energy, but it's not enough. Why is it we cannot convince people in this country that nuclear could be a safe bet or at least a greener bet? Well, it, every one of these is a trade-off. There yeah. is none of these. No, none of them's perfect. Down. Period. None. Because, yeah, because I mean, you got to store nuclear fuel for twenty-four thousand years. Well, that's okay. We can. We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll put it in Utah. Nobody lives in Utah. Some of the cars yeah. I look at have because I that think I may have some in the back of my refrigerator. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I've driven across enough of this country. I'm telling you, there's some places we could store this stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, aside from that, yeah. you know, and so yeah, every tech and but you know, you're burning coal and people are dying in coal mines and. And, and it's everywhere, you know, the risks and dangers. Yeah. And so, but so much of our energy comes from fossil fuels now. When I say energy, electric, electrical production and renewables can account for some of it, but not all of it. And by renewable, I'm wind energy, solar, geothermal, uh, anything else you can find that doesn't have a great impact. That's fantastic. You and I had the conversation, and it's been five or six years ago about a town in Spain that was harvesting the motion of uh, waves. waves in the sea. And the tides, yeah. You have, you have floats, essentially, and they have dynamos hooked up to the floats. Yeah. As they rise and fall, they spin the dynamos. And they were using those to power the town. Yeah. yeah. So anything like that. And the sea is fantastic. The ocean's fantastic because it never quits moving. Yeah. But we, we need to be trying all of this and discounting none of it. And exactly. the problem is we have too many people now that scream, uh, we got to have more electricity, we have to be able to power more electrical things, but they don't want to consider any new ways to generate that. And it, it, it becomes untenable. And if there's something possible we could try, I would think that we'd want to be trying everything and writing off nothing. Yeah. And it's, aggra- think, well- it's aggravating to me. I think the big manufacturers, if th- and this is that technology projection that I don't have the resources for, but but Volkswagen, GM, Ford, Chrysler are all banking that there's going to be some serious restrictions on hydrocarbon use, yeah. on fossil fuel use. Well, Not hydrocarbon use, but the, fossil, fuel, it, fossil there fuel was use. There was an ar- article in Forbes two years ago, and I think I sent this one to you, that said that the U.S. had trimmed their hydrocarbon production so much 
that they were already ahead of the Paris Accords and didn't even need to sign on. And that the problem was we were – the hydrocarbons now seem to be coming from the developing world, namely China and India. With uh, and you know they they are trying to catch up to where we are now, and I get that they're trying in every way to do that, but we can't trim enough here to offset what they're doing there. I want to I want to split a hair. Okay. On this, and rather, and this is actually something you had said earlier. Fossil fuel is the term we're looking for, rather than hydrocarbon. Actually, because you and I and and we've been and. We've been talking recently and looking at the new synthetic fuels mm-hmm. that come out of that. Porsche has one. Audi has a, a diesel synthetic that they began producing several, four, five years ago. It's um, it's essentially at a production cost that's equivalent of non-synthetic benzene. It uses electrical grids to take hydrogen, split it off of water, and then weld it to carbon dioxide in the air. It creates a hydrocarbon. Okay. Then, then when you combust it, it releases that carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere. So it's carbon neutral, which okay. is different from taking carbon out of the ground and releasing it there. Okay. So they're still hydrocarbon fuels, but they're carbon neutral hydrocarbon fuels. These fuels are promising. I was looking at the numbers for the Porsche. The, the Porsche production run for their gasoline is uh, 130,000 gallons. You know, that's their first kind of proto run. I'm kind of now, curious to to know what that costs to come up with the first hundred thirty. Like anything oh, in produ- oh. in production, eventually economies of scale will take over and will make it a lot cheaper. But I'm wondering what that stuff. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and I, the thing is, um, their their process is so pri- proprietary. We don't know if it requires lithium or platinum no. or if there's any scarce metals needed. or So it's really too early to over-evaluate its whole thing. But their current production you know, is 130,000 gallons, and I was, I was just doing the math. That's like 40 people if the <laughs> average person driving 20,000 miles a year, which is the American average. Yeah, but remember what Porsche, why Porsche said they were getting involved with this. Now, certainly what they said and what the applications are are two completely utterly different things but Porsche said they wanted to get involved with making this hybrid fuel in order that their customers could continue driving their old 911s which is awesome yeah it's fantastic I want to be one of those old 911 owners as soon as I can yeah if it works and it's doable and it doesn't have some kind of weird additive that has to go with it in order to make (laughs) it functional you could apply that to everything with one caveat the one catch is the electricity and energy they use to make it. Oh, surely. If it comes from fossil fuel to get the electricity, then it's not carbon neutral anymore. But you, if they get it from solar or wind, if they use wind, solar power for the process. So once again, the actual greenness on, on, about the car, is, I think is the big story is it's going to be driven about things having nothing to do with the car. Yeah, just It's it, going to have to do with hydroelectric power. It's going to have to do with windmills. No, nah, nuclear, and, damn it. Make the electricity. And make nuclear. Make fuel. I want to drive my Corvette. <laughs> yeah, and nuclear and nuclear electricity can produce your your carbon neutral fuel and and the idea of you know of people getting to keep their cars and drive them and and I think you know what I think people would rather have I think people most people would rather like to know that they have a zero carbon emission car. My Corvette, your Corvette, not mine. I don't have a Corvette. Your Corvette. I'll lend you one I of mean, mine. Yeah, but I mean, knowing you know, I've got this really fabulous machine. It's got this 
beautiful design, all the lines, and it's got the right sound. See, you know? I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you just slightly. Okay, good. I would rather that everybody else had carbon neutral or carbon <laughs> negative cars so I could drive my Corvette and not give a damn. <laughs> yeah, but if you could if you could drop it, if you could make zero changes, put gas into it that was carbon neutral without no performance side effects or even improved performance, you know, or whatever. But at any rate. You, it, you know, you as, as long yeah. as I can still smell the exhaust, I really don't. Care. Yeah, I just want I just want to. You know, I want that smell and I want that sound. I love those side pipes more than life itself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, another another development though, in a, in a different direction though. I think the interior of the car is ready for a revamp. I, I, do you know any Tesla owners? Do you have any Teslas? Or you, you've ridden into Teslas? Uh, I I have not. I do not, and it's not because I steer away from them. I just uh, not that many people. Well, that's not accurate. There's a lot of people in Kansas City who drive Teslas. You see them all the time. Okay, here's I don't know here's, any. Here's why I ask is because the the story that Tesla drivers and owners talk about is how much they love the interior of the car. That's the conversation you'll always end up with. And they go to this massive display, you know, which is a really big monitor that's in the middle of the dash that has all these great graphics and it has you know, all these readouts and projections and fuel estimates and a lot of efficiency ratings. You're seeing that a lot because they were so popular. Cadillac has uh, their cars have huge screens in them and they are the width of the dash. That's Uh, the new, that's the future of the car. Yeah. You're starting to see that quite a bit more. Yeah. And, and that's, I think that's the future of the car because for, I mean, once been a dashboard or interior of a car revolution that's happened not since the 1950s. Essentially, the interiors we have now are the same interiors we had in the 1950s, except they don't have like chrome spikes in the middle of the dash. Oh, well, you know, got, remember the Monte Carlos with the captain seat, you know, <laughs> the, the turnable seat. Yeah, the captain seat. That that's the one. Well, the that, captain that, seat that, is that awesome. The, yeah, the I, ramblers, the bench seat where they pull down. Yeah, and pull down it becomes a bed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, like I actually too. had one of those. I had a rambler ambassador. I had a Saab nine thousand turbo, uh, yeah. and when the back seat felt folded down in that, and there was a parcel shelf you could f- pull out, it was cavernous inside. I moved a six and a half foot tall armoire inside that car. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It was a fantastic car. Of course, it broke down every other week, but yeah. the rest of the car was pretty cool. <laughs> but that's a common theme in SUVs, you know, folding seats or removable seats oh, yeah. or maximizing the cargo space. And, and the utility of interior space has really grown dramatically in the comfort. But I think the visual cockpit has not gone through the kind of revolution. And yeah. I think Tesla's going to prompt that. I think the I, cars I, I see coming I think coming they've already the, started to. Yeah. I yeah. think they've already it, started to. Uh, there is... There is something now. As much as I want to argue about technology and cars and all of that garbage, I'm not still watching a tube TV. I got a big 60 inch TV on my wall, and I am. You know, we are doing Zoom over phones and laptops and all that. I embrace all of that technology. When I walk out into my garage, I get in something that still has fiberglass dashboard and. You know, lap belts uh, that breathes air. Yeah, I'll yeah. I'll tell you the same thing I've told Rhonda a bunch of times about the seat belts in those Corvettes. They are not going to save you. <laughs> They're going right. to help a puking fireman find a corpse. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but I don't disagree with you about the advent of new technology and interiors and what the changes will be. 
And one of the things, I, I told you I'm working on this uh, giant Cadillac project. Uh, the new, uh, oh, geez, what's the name for that thing? Is it the Celestique? I should know this. I've been working on the project. If you go look at the new $300,000 hand-built Cadillac that's coming out next year, the interior is extraordinary. And it's yeah. yep, yep. flowing lines, I was lines, looking at the Rolls-Royce uh, concept car from, the, from a recent car show. Amazing. Of course it is. Neither one of us will ever touch it. <laughs> yeah, but still, I mean, there's concept cars. Well, well, actually, to that question of how one predicts the future, that's what you see. That's the whole point of a concept car is technological forecasting and consumer sampling, which is different from the modern concept car is dramatically different from the concept car 40 years ago, the Futura, and oh, the yeah. Firebirds and those things, because now they're meant to be, they, it has to operate, it has to roll, and it's meant to be a way of putting kind of a toe in the lake of the consumer. Well, and so if you, you go can back see to technological the, forecasting at work. If you go back concept. to the 50s and the jet age and everything, people thought we'd be driving turbine cars by now, and Chrysler even took a stab at that. Yeah. Hell, Jay Leno has a turbine-propelled bike that he says if people tailgate, they get a melted bumper. Yeah, and there was the Nucleon, which never got produced, was the nuclear-powered. Oh, God. Oh, the nuclear pre- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of nuclear, no, I would like it in a stationary plant. I do not want it in a vehicle. Yeah, Even that's a great we said idea. Chernobyl, not yeah. Chernobyl. Yeah. The- <laughs> Boom. Well, we they even yeah. the Air Force even talked about trying to do a nuclear-powered jet. Yeah, there was a nuclear-powered bomber in the 1950s. They designed. Yeah, but except oh, yeah. it was so stinking heavy, it'd never get off the ground. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, trying to predict what the future would be, usually you base it on where you are now and where you think your technology now would go. And we don't take we don't have the ability to look at what the technology is going to be ten years from now because we can't possibly imagine the innovation. Well, I beg to differ. I, okay. I, I think I think sometimes you can tell. Sometimes engineers have a really good idea, and because when you when you do corporate investing and you got something a project a new motor design at GM, they don't go off of you simply saying, "Oh, I think this might work." And research development is a pretty well understood science, especially in the United States. This is the this is the mother load. The United States is the place where significant research and development happens more than any place else in the world, and but it has for the last forty years. If you okay, let's go back to. 1983 mm-hmm. yeah Timex Sinclair computer do you remember those they were I out, do not they were out at the same time as the Commodore 64 surely you okay. remember that yeah, yeah and yeah. dot matrix printers and all that good stuff mm-hmm. I don't think they could have predicted that we would have a phone that you carry in your pocket that had more computing power than when we sent the men to, men to the moon mm-hmm. in 1969. But but the second I say that, the artist who drew Dick Tracy imagined watches that you would talk into and have a video screen. And so did Flash Gordon. They uh, had the video phone in Flash Gordon in the 1930s. Yeah. Exact same technology. Actually, let me give you a more concrete thing. If, if a listener wants to kind of really get a, a hard look at this, there's an article uh, called Forecasting Technological Development by two authors named Gordon and Ahmet. In the 1960s, they worked for the Rand Corporation, 
which was doing technological forecasting for the United States government. And they published a paper in 1970 predicting that sometime around 1983, people would begin putting computers in their homes that would be connected to each other with a central storage facility for information. They would begin using it for commercial purposes as well as education. And then they talked about the advent of identity threat, theft, and cybercrime. And they have all the data and the reasons for the calculations. And they had a whole series of forecasts of technological developments. It, it, it's a lot more feasible than you think. The people on the inside actually have a very good idea of a very good idea of five years. Okay, great. What do those a guys fa- say our cars are going to look like? A fair a fair guess of ten years, and a four. And well, you know, and some of the things that are never going to. And, you know, this is, you mentioned earlier, the really crazy ideas, you know, the flying cars. Yeah, and and we're going to get to that real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Which is such a fun topic, you know. And for me, that's more of a fun topic than a serious one for a couple of reasons. But it's here a lot closer than you'd think, you know. Well, the Mm -hmm. fact that there's three of them that are pending FAA approval. Right. One, One is cleared. It's already used in Slovakia. Slovakian air, it was cleared. There's one that's been used in the Netherlands for quite a while, and all you need is a gyroplane license for it. It's called the PAL, PAL-5, PAL-V Liberty. It's a two-seat gyroplane car, you know, and they're around. And it's, it's right. production. It's in production, by the way. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And gyroplanes, I'm not a pilot, but gyroplanes are reputed to be among the easiest craft to fly. A gyroplane license is a, a, a major tier lower than an airplane license. I'm wondering, and I should know better, but aren't gyroplane licenses similar to what you have to have to fly an ultralight? Yes. Or can you fly an ultralight unlicensed? Um, There are ultralight licenses depending on the horsepower, I believe. I know ultralights, you don't have to have a medical check to fly. Well, there's some ultralights. depends on the ultralight. Sure. Yeah, so, it depends on the ultralight. But, but, and the gyroplane, at any rate, these are really easy to fly, 400-mile uh, range, 120-mile-an-hour vehicles I that are really, really reliable. I really, really, really want it to look like a Jetsons car. It's a cool-looking machine. <laughs> you can Google that thing, you know, and it's uh, the blade. It, a, a gyroplane blade is kind of like a helicopter blade that's on top, so it folds and then points backwards along the top of it. It's kind of funky-looking, but it's flat and squat, kind of like a frog. Sure. You know, and with a side-by-side cockpit, and it's not ugly. And there, the one in Slovakia is absolutely beautiful. There it's have been beautiful. Some, some attempts at this before, and I know I've seen one that looked a little bit like somebody crashed a BMW Assetta into a Cessna 152. That's right. And yes. Had, had wings that folded down the side. And I just yeah. look at that, and I think, that is terrifying. <laughs> you, do you remember the James? there was the one in the James Bond movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was maybe it was the man with the golden gun, maybe? Because it, it took place someplace in Asia where he, he is his AMC, whatever it was, and he drives it into the shed. And then he hooks up the, you know, the wings and the tail surface clamp to it. And then he drives away on it. Man, has and, this and, devolved. And there, I mean, there were a couple, there were people who went that way. But, but the real technology thing on this is, of course, is... There are electric planes now. The first yeah. electric airplane was FAA certified. What kind of so range I, and, al- and altitude are they talking about with that? It was certified for consumer use. There's a, and, and I don't know what the mileage is. If that's the direction and if actually the battery changes happen, big question mark. 
you can have personal. I know there's a firm in, in uh, San Francisco that it, they basically look like drones. There's a new one. It's a single passenger. Looks like an oversized drone. It's electric, quad motor, and is supposed to have, I think, a 75 minute runtime on it. Altitude is. 30, yeah, there's a, there's a couple. I know there's one in production in China. And what what the Chinese market is doing, they're saying all you have to do is it's only point to point. It's programmed to go from A to B. And so it's anybody. You don't need a license. It's like So a I jump in it and I say, I want to go to the mall. And you have a mall button. Oh. And then the door closes. It takes off. It has radar. And then it goes to the mall. And then it has a spot where it parks at the mall or on top of the roof of the business. But you program that ahead of time. I want to do that. That's cool. <laughs> and there's a there's a firm in San Francisco that's many. They're I don't think they're FAA cleared yet, but they're working on these. Is yeah, I'm just picturing taking all the traffic on the ground and sticking it in the air. <laughs> and, you know, when you have a fender bender, you're not pulling over to the curb. No. <laughs> yeah, but what I want to know is how you put a 351 Cleveland in there. <laughs> that's what I want to know. <laughs> Airborne you crackers. Know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mark's, Mark, Mark, Mark's quadcopter, the blades are all going to look like, like craggers. you damn right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, man. I, I want to go look all this stuff up, man. This sounds cool. It's the things we love about the car. Yeah. And those things, and for me, the flying car, no matter how perfect it will be, is just not as interesting for me. Because for me, the car is a visceral experience. It's intellectually interesting. Maybe it's a fascinating part of some distant future, the Jetsons and who knows what. And, and frankly, electric vehicles, I don't. I, I like my car. I like a gas motor and stuff like that. I hope I get greener fuel to use and better mileage and that sort of stuff. But we love, everybody loves cars for their own reasons. Now, I'd really like to see the greener fuel work because if, it, it, if they can make that, into an easy transition for internal combustion engines. We already got all the cars. We yeah. already have all the cars. Yeah. And the the other thing is the more conversations we have about going to fully EV cars and not having any gas driven, uh, not having any internal combustion engines, think of all of the other industries that are affected when that happens. What happens to mechanics? What happens to the parts industry yeah. and all the manufacturing that goes around yeah. that and, and all the other stuff that goes with it that goes away if, if everything is fully EV. And I, that's why I think if it happens, it's going to take at least a couple generations for it to happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But also, you know, think about in, energy independence. You know, it would be wonderful. It, things are, you know, it, relations with the Mideast and Russian politics. And, yeah, oh. you just get so tired of hearing about it. It'd be nice, you know, to be independent and have We get tired autonomy. of hearing about it. You live that. Yeah. He, that's got to wear on you. I teach political science. Well, you know, there's a term I just learned this term that, you know, it's people pick up the news and they start watching it and there's bad news and it kind of gets them hooked. They call it doom scrolling. Oh, that's oh yeah, a good yeah. term for it. And, well, you, I, and I, you know exactly what I'm talking I, about. I, right? I think that's all the major news outlets uh, right now on either side yeah. of the aisle. Um, I, I, but but, but the, history, the future of the automobile actually can be part of that brighter story if it's, you know, it's national autonomy, these, these green carbon neutral fuels create and, autonomy and, for national policy and i'm and, not saying i'm completely against the idea of evs 
the technology and oh my god their performance is amazing oh jeez oh, and yeah. and with the with the Porsche Taycan I finally found one that I like the look of oh those are sexy I'm not against it but I don't think it's the only thing we should be looking at and I think there's going to be it, some with states banning the sale of new internal combustion engines, I think that's a little short-sighted. I believe that this is going to take more time than a lot of people are predicting. Mary Barra is saying she wants GM to be 100% EV by 2035. The upside for her is she will have retired and been out the door for a few years before that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, the, the great news is if they get that fuel. And by the way, the Audi fuel is 4 to $6 a gallon production cost for their, their diesel and it's 85 percent the efficiency so you know that's on a, a gallon per gallon basis it's the same but as far as miles per gallon you get it's like 15 percent less miles per gallon but that's pretty comparable well it is and to swapping out a whole system of technologies distribution networks and that doesn't you know, mean the cost effective doesn't mean they're done with it they may improve that yeah and just because they've said we're going to put a prohibition on it doesn't mean it can't be lifted well, and remember, I mean, they, uh, yeah. Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, Bugatti, uh, Skoda, and several other manufacturers are all under the same house, VW Group. It's yeah, all the same right. same company. I think the future for uh, cars as we know it is probably brighter than a lot of people are giving it credit for. And I'm usually the biggest naysayer, oh, they're not going to do that crap. But I think that... There needs to be improvement across the board. I'm hopeful for new fuels for internal combustion engines and improvements with EVs, and we're starting to see a few companies working on hydrogen. I know Toyota has invested a lot in that, and I think it's not as dark as a lot of people would think. Oh, no, I think it's bright. The whole history of the automobile is finding challenges and surmounting them. That's what the history of the automobile is. Year to year, day to day, and technology steps forwards in the, the weight of bodies, in the strength, you know, crumple zones, safety, yeah. uh, visibility. All three of us are old enough to remember riding in our parents' cars without a seatbelt on, and if you got in a crash, you just flew around till you hooked a door handle. <laughs> every single thing, every single thing about the, the automobile is dramatically better than it was 100 yeah. years ago. And it's and, it's still headed that way. I don't think there's any uh, safety balloon or package that would pop open faster than my mom's arm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that lock bar would slam down, and you might have broken a few ribs, but you lived. Yeah. <laughs> Show of hands, how many of us can remember riding in the parcel shelf in the back window? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. family trip. Yeah. The parcel shelf. It's not the back dash. It's the parcel it's shelf. The partial, you're, you're, you're not just wrong. A, you're just asleep in the sun in the back window. <laughs> I mean, there's revolutions in tire manufacturing oh, that change the mileage. I mean, it's just there's so many different frontiers. It's easy for people to dwell on the fuel question. Yeah. And the fuel question is something that's going to sort it out with all different kinds of answers. Well, there's going to be hundreds of different answers. But it's also going to be you know composite materials versus new technologies for shaping metals, ultra-thin steels with different tensile strengths. I mean, it's going to be everything you can imagine. I can sum it up like this. Rhonda drives a newer Porsche Cayenne. It's a very nice car. You guys know I, I just drive old Corvettes and old Harleys as much as I can. Until we have to go someplace together and I get in that Cayenne, I think, ooh, 
this is really nice. This is comfy. Ooh, she's got a good stereo too. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm not denying that at all. All right, wrapping it up. What's the dumbest thing you've done in a car that you can talk about here? Now, Ken's been a friend of mine for over twenty years. I've heard all the stories he can't tell in public. <laughs> and, and, and there's more than a few. Uh, we're not even sure the statute of limitations has run out. Yeah, on that's the big issue right here. <laughs> so, but, okay, just a second. And I have a story that <clears throat> this is new for you because I don't know why it occurred to me, but I'd forgotten it. It was this took place forty some years ago. Wow, well, I, I feel like high. I should have a cocktail. <laughs> when I was in high school, you don't have a cocktail? Nah, just drinking. Oh a my gosh, what kind of what kind of journalist are you? <laughs> <laughs> so the bar is right there as soon as we're off the show <laughs> okay so when i was in high school near my house there was something called the meadowdale international raceway and it was a three and a third mile uh road track so it had like a nice mile long That's straight away road track. and it had a you know a hairpin it had a chicane it had all the things it had a scent you know, so it had everything that a, a real classic road trip, you know, with the bridge over the track to get to the infield for the spectators. It just it needed started, a German name that you couldn't pronounce. That's right. <laughs> what is that the yeah, Hunga exactly. Bunga or yeah. what the hell is the name of that place? Oh, so Nürburgring. 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 Basically, anybody you've heard of, not everybody, that's a big statement, but a phenomenal number of famous uh, racers use this track. You know, I was just looking at it today, kind of looking at the the who's who. So you have people like Roger Penske, Bobby Unser, Al Unser, uh, Dan Gurney, Parnelli Jones. Oh, wow. You know, they all raced oh, at hey, this racetrack. Uh, and while you're mentioning that, I, I need to say, uh, happy birthday, Mr. Derek Bell, famous Porsche racer. Today, I th- he's 81 or 82, but uh, he's still out driving, so that's pretty cool. Happy Sweet. birthday. Sorry to interrupt. Okay, so at any rate, this track closed in 1968. So in 1975, I'm in high school, and somebody knows about it. I didn't know it was there, you know. God, and someone of my friends knew about it, so we go there, and we had there were three of us. So it was my friend, or I'll go ahead and use real names, Margo. So Margo had this like powder blue Volkswagen, and my my friend Dave says we got to go to the track with Margo's Volkswagen. So we go out there. And there's this beautiful little racetrack there you know surrounded by woods and it's gorgeous and there's nothing there it's just closed so you, you have to move some gates and stuff to get in there am i gonna get in trouble for this no it's kind of dangerous you know because we had the thing flat out in a volkswagen so we thought oh we better wear helmets so <laughs> so, so we got God. and picture <laughs> dean jones and buddy hack and so we're the three of us marco and dave and i with our motorcycle our sparkly motorcycle helmets on crunched in like like somehow if you're leaning a little slower you're going to have less wind resistance while you're inside a car and just folks it all the way to the bottom whipping around on this racetrack not going all that fast but it was a, it was a lot of fun probably felt fast and, in that vw yeah it fell fast in the vw and we uh, were we had a great time for several weeks and then the wheel came off so that was kind of the end of it steering wheel or outside wheel front right okay how far did you go well it was downtown was the good news the good news is we were in town when the wheel came off so we weren't out at the track but that kind of put a kibosh on the whole thing but it was a great time out there at the speedway have they leveled that as the track gone? No. Um, it is now a park. Road trip. 
They <laughs> turned it into a park, and it's a green space, and you can go walk around there in the preservation society. And uh, it was a great time. Oh, cool. Very cool. Yeah. We've been speaking with Dr. Kenyon. Dr. I still have to call you doctor. doctor. That just blows my mind. <laughs> Dr. Kenyon, History and Political Science Department head at McPherson College. Doctor, give us your social media links real quick. Where do you uh, spend time? Uh, I don't. I am, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> Millennials who like cars. Yes, Great absolutely. Site. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it, as always. It was a joy. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. God, I love that interview. He is the nicest guy. Well, and that voice. That voice. Yeah, but, but he's, hey, been a, he's been a friend of mine forever, and we've gone and done heinous. It's like if NPR was together. naked. That's his voice. Yeah, coming up next. I'm pretty sure he was from the waist down. We couldn't see it. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Probably. I'm, I'm having a great night. Me I and Chivas. Right. Uh, My guess is he's sitting there in a spangly jockstrap. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sorry, Ken. I let your I let the cat out of the bag. Don't leave Yon alone. <laughs> anyway, what I was saying was, thanks for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at drivenradioshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show, and on LinkedIn at Driven Radio Show Podcast. And listen everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brad Hatfield from Mark L. Groves. Yup. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio. Thank you.